500 years. Boys, your kids up slow. You mean your mom doesn't buy your hind? No question, she. Wait till you taste it. The finer things. Happily, some are affordable. Like Grey Poupon Dijon Mustard. So fine, it's even made with white wine. Pardon me, would you have any Grey Poupon? But of course. Farnsworth, I do believe that well-groomed man has driven off with that Grey Poupon. Shall I chase him down, sir? Fine idea. Alfred, would you be so kind as to put the pedal to the metal? Very good, sir. Pardon me, but you mistakenly wandered off with my great poop part! Ow! The scoundrel! I haven't yet added it to my pork loin! Ah! He's not even eating that pork loin. Time to pop some nothing. Certainly, sir. Hooks ripping through metal. Forgive me, I do love it, sir. Present from my ex-wife. Eggs! Caviar, sir? Yes. Ah, oh, that metal. You went for the caviar slick. The hound! No, sir, we appear to be in a grocery store. Please, sir, pardon me. But of course. Madam President. Senator from Vermont. Thank you very much. Um, as the longest serving independent in the history of the US Congress, I want to address a, an issue that I think does not get uh, the kind of discussion that it should. Uh, from either political party, but certainly uh, not from our Republican colleagues. And that is the moral, economic, and political dimensions of the kind of income and wealth inequality uh, which we have in our country today. In my view, uh, this is the most important issue facing the United States because it impacts on virtually every aspect of our lives it is an issue that we must be discussing thoroughly and one in which the American people have got to be engaged. Indeed, let's be engaged. Hi there, this is Jeff Till with the 500years.org podcast. It's October 28th, 2015, just three days before Halloween. Today's show is called Catch Up with the Rich, Wealth 
inequality, and toilet paper. I had planned out the show yesterday and was pretty happy with what I was going to say. Uh, but then this morning, while I was having my lobster frittata for breakfast, I was browsing Facebook and somebody posted this article by Shannon Argueta, which is 12 things that only the working poor truly understand. So I'm just going to read a little bit of it and then sort of scan through the, the 12 things. Republicans love to hate the poor. They see them as inferior, lazy moochers who just bask in their poorness and enjoy all of the happiness of being, that being poor brings them. They tell America that poor people should stop being poor if they just work hard enough. What they forget to mention when they paint this fictional portrait of happy poor people are the struggles the roughly 50 million Americans who live below the poverty line face. Now, this is me speaking. Uh, 50 million Americans is the bottom uh, hextile. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but the bottom sixth of the population. And I believe the poverty line is usually set by a percentage. So it's always um, it's always sort of whatever the, that bottom quintile or that bottom uh, hextile will be. Same same as how they measure the 1%. So it's interesting is if you take the all the people below the poverty line and all the people in the 1%, uh, who are, are big wealth inequality problems in, in the U.S., and we all march them into the ocean, uh, we, we'll still have a, a bottom hextile, and we'll still have a 1%. Anyways, uh, I digress, though. Uh, normal, everyday things that cause someone with little or no money to weep in frustration. Here are 12 struggles that only the working poor can truly understand. Okay, number 12, the car maintenance struggle. Now, I've, I've seen this in action uh, about two summers ago, uh, we had a, a desperately poor person painting our house, and the car was like the number one problem. Uh, constantly, if it did break, it would just completely uh, cripple their ability to manage their finances. And then the, the double jeopardy was that then they couldn't show up for work. And since he was hourly, uh, if he didn't go to work, he didn't he didn't make his money. So I can totally see that. Um, next is the dental struggle. So it says here, if you wake up one morning with a throbbing, swollen face, you're immediately faced with the horror that you have to go to the dentist. Uh, root canal and crown can easily run $2,000. So I buy that. We just had uh, a, a procedure done on my wife, uh, four wisdom teeth removed, and it was $1,200. Uh, I could see how that could set someone in debt for quite a while. Um, 10, the sick kid struggle. Uh, your kid gets sick in the middle of the week and you don't have any money. I'm sort of paraphrasing the article here. Uh, you can't afford medicine. The medical emergency struggle. So this is happening when you have an acute event and you have to be hospitalized for something. Uh, it's going to create huge bills. And I can totally see how this, this is almost crippling for anyone, not just the people under the poverty line, uh, but even middle and upper middle class people who get uh, sometimes sacked with huge bills if they're not insured uh, or need to uh, just default on them altogether which once you do that, then you, you probably are in trouble of getting credit anywhere. Uh, the grocery struggle, number eight. Again, uh, when you're too much at the month, at the end, uh, your food stamps, and maybe you don't even qualify for assistance, what now? Uh, you have to sit down and try to figure out how you can make $30 by food for the week. So right there is another struggle that I'm you know, very sympathetic two. Uh, I have three kids. It does cost a lot of money to put food on the table. 
So number seven, the bill paying struggle. Uh, number six is the overdraft fee struggle. Uh, cause a lot of times you only have a couple dollars in your bank account and then you go over $1 and it creates these large $35 fees. And I can see how a poor person would have a very hard time with that. The school clothes struggle. Kids are constantly growing, and so you have to buy them new clothes. It's expensive. For the school supplies struggle, uh, kids have to have supplies, so that can run a poor family a lot of money that they wouldn't normally have. And with the, the idea that, of course, if the kid doesn't have their school supplies, uh, they won't succeed in school, and that'll probably just cause more poverty uh, generationally. Number three is the birthday struggle. Uh, yay, it's time to celebrate your child's entrance into the world. How exciting, except when you realize you have to buy a cake, uh, birthday candles, decorations, a present, and the older they get, the more expensive they are. I can totally see that. Uh, two is the Christmas struggle, sort of the same problem as the birthday struggle. And then finally, the hygiene product struggle. Uh, this is the most degrading of all struggles because you run out of shampoo, toothpaste, toilet paper, deodorant, tampons, razors, etc., and you have no money to buy more. You may receive assistance, but food stamps don't pay for non-food items. Now what? You pray that you don't smell until your next check, or you sit in the corner and cry because you realize it really, really sucks to be poor. Just to finish the article up, uh, by the way, these are not problems exclusively faced by the people below the poverty line. There are millions of Americans who live just at or slightly above the poverty line, and they struggle too. Maybe even more since this group makes too much to qualify for any assistance, but not enough to live comfortably or even afford the necessities. We feel your pain too. And so that's the end of the article. And you can see that some of the most basic things in life from hygiene supplies, school supplies, basic clothes, groceries, the dentist, or even a common cold can be incredibly hard for a person who doesn't make very much money. So we know being the working poor is a tough go, but how does that compare to the pay of the top CEOs? According to this article in the WashingtonPost.com, uh, published in September of 2014, it's titled, The Pay Gap Between CEOs and Workers is Much Worse Than You Realize. And it's based on a new study conducted at the Harvard Business School. They found that Americans believe CEOs make roughly 30 times what the average worker makes in the U.S., when in actuality they are making more than 350 times the average. So that's a pretty big number. I mean, that's almost obscene, isn't it? Uh, going to the ratios here, so that puts the average uh, Fortune 500 CEO making about $12 million per year. Uh, go on here. While a handful of countries might perceive larger pay gaps than the United States, none of the ones surveyed have an actual pay gap anywhere near as large. In Switzerland, the country with the second largest CEO to worker pay gap, the chief executives make 148 times more than the average worker. In Germany, the country with the third largest gap, CEOs make 147 times the average worker. So here, United States, I'm looking at a graph, it's 354 times as much. And with the lowest they pulled being more on that expectation in Poland at 28 times. Now, I'm going to trust that the data is is sound and I, I know they purposely had picked fortune 500 ceos which represent probably some of the biggest companies 
uh, on the entire planet. Uh, they didn't include the CEO who owns a couple subway franchises uh, or owns a few dry cleaning locations. We're also going to assume that there's probably some outliers in this bunch. So uh, we know Bill Gates, for example, uh, is in that Fortune 500. And so his, his uh, you know, billion-dollar salary might be uh, skewing what these average CEOs make. I think I can see the, the frustration in this. It, it does have a really terrible aesthetic because everyone knows that every person on the world has the same uh, 168 or so hours to work with during the week or roughly that same 40 to 90 uh, hour work week. And so it seems kind of incredible that one person's labor could be 354 times that uh, more valuable than the lowest person on the totem pole, even though probably 354 of those people uh, put together probably couldn't do the CEO's job in most cases. So are these people really superhuman in the fact that they can possibly be worth $12 million per year, while most people might only be worth $20,000 or $40,000 per year. Now, if we consider that the Fortune 500 are pretty much the rock stars and the biggest organizations uh, on the planet besides government, we see that these are very highly uh, coveted and very important positions to have. Uh, that they make uh, about what the average quarterback in the NFL makes or less than what a basketball player makes should probably be a signal of how exclusive this skill set is. So while the aesthetic in the this commercial world is very ugly for a, a rock star caliber person to be making $12 million a year, if we were to apply it to an entertainer, uh, a sports figure, or even a rapper or pop musician, we would probably be celebrating how much this person made because of their exclusive talents. Now I want to go into a more nasty governmenty aspect of this wealth inequality, and that's both the stock market and our monetary system. Now, the stock market as it currently is, is probably worth many, many times what it would be worth if inflation didn't exist and if only qualified investors uh, thought it wise to put their money in. It would also be a heck of a lot smaller if the value of your money didn't go down over time because of inflation. And if the Fed didn't set interest rates so low that regular savings accounts were only returning one-tenth of a percent uh, on people's savings, which is what, about the current rate. I just opened one yesterday, and it was 0.12%. Not one percent, but one-tenth of basically uh, a percentage point, which is nowhere near something that could keep up with inflation. Now, you add this along with uh, retirement-type accounts, which are tax-incentivized to be put into the market. Um, you have all of this money that would never be put into stock market um, going in there and wildly inflating uh, how much money can be made there. Now, if we think about these superstar, rock star CEOs, they're usually not operational maestros or product guys like Steve Jobs who really necessarily uh, know how to manage the business uh, or how to develop exceptional value. Now, many of them do, but their first and foremost job is to be a is to appeal and to deal with the shareholders uh, at these Fortune 500 companies. There's a quarter culture that just persists where every quarter the earnings have to be right, they have to meet or exceed expectations, 
and the whole firm is directed by the leaders, the CEO, his executive team, uh, the board, and even many of the lower ranking VPs to make sure you push and you push and push for results for the quarter to show share price and to not um, uh, have that go down. Now, that's very dangerous for companies because it makes them not focus on building long-term sustainable value. Uh, it sort of cocks up having uh, long-term projects that you know might just take away uh, CapEx without uh, returning to the share price immediately. And since the shareholders are so rabid about getting the share price constantly up and growing and better, they tend to comp compensate the CEOs with tremendous amount of stock options and other stock sort of enhanced uh, ways of getting paid. So when the CEO decides to flip his shares, his stock options into the marketplace, that's where he makes his $12 million. Now that money doesn't come out of the operational profits of the company. So it's not like the company has to be sitting going, you know, is this guy worth $12 million a year? We could really add that to our profit line. Uh, they're thinking, um, it's coming out of the marketplace. And where does, whose money is that? Now, that's going to be yours and mine and your mom and dad's retirement accounts and your 401k and all these other monies that are forced into the stock market because of the incentives of our inflationary currency, our inability to save regular money, uh, how, how money degrades over time because of the monetary policy and the tax incentives we have to invest in the stock market regardless of our personal knowledge or risk profile in doing so. Now, I'm not one typically to recommend government solutions to problems like this, but this time I'm going to recommend a government solution. I think if the government wanted to get this ratio down, maybe down to Sweden or Germany levels of wealth inequality, what they all have to do is make money private uh, have it be competing and have it be market focused so that the market provides money and not the government. And then they'll also have to stop uh, issuing or commanding what interest rates are so that people, normal people, can begin using savings accounts uh, or just having money uh, sitting around in bags in order to store wealth for their retirement. Now, I can't say for sure that would totally do the trick, but it might very well have companies have to pay their CEOs mostly out of operational expenses. And at that point, maybe there'd be more competition uh, for someone who wants a $6 million job to be stuck with that, that position. It would also refocus these CEOs to have to either be product-oriented, uh, value-oriented type of guys like Steve Jobs who can just keep on creating uh, wonderful products for the marketplace, or operational maestros uh, like Lee Iococo was, who could you know take any process or any manufacturing uh, facility or any kind of resource uh, equation and just really drive efficiency into it. And that would actually drive more wealth for everybody, for the company's customers and their employees, uh, and probably ultimately the CEO. Now, if you want to look at another sort of nasty-ish way that the supercharged, overpriced stock market is driving wealth inequality, is you can also look at liquidity events that happen either when a, a new company is taken IPO or the new company is acquired or sometimes even when a, a piece of another company is divested and then uh, relaunched or, or reacquired. Uh, here's one example from LinkedIn's uh, IPO from 2011. 
Uh, at the time, the company was producing a profit of $15.4 million per year. After the first day of the initial IPO, the company was worth $8.9 billion. Now, the usual evaluation for just a regular old company, let's say if there was a cement company down the street that I wanted to buy, is there might be some multiple of income coming out of the company that I would pay uh, to buy that. I don't know, maybe that would be five years worth of income or 10 years worth of income, but it'd probably be somewhere around that. There's probably a lot of companies that you would only buy it for, uh, you know, one year's worth of income or cash flow, depending on the opportunity. Now, this uh, LinkedIn IPO, I just did the calculations. Uh, that was a 593 times valuation uh, for how much income that company made. Now, just think how preposterous this is in its proportion. You know, would you ever pay $593 for something that would return $1 per year with that 593 being sunk cost? It's just wholesale insane. It's not even real business. But it's only made possible because, again, of the overpriced, the overblown stock market that is really a, a fixture from the financial services industry and the U.S. federal government. Here's another way that these undeserving villains make too much money, and that is corporatism or fascism. Fascism, economic fascism, that is, is when the government colludes with private businesses to either control them or protect them, usually with the businesses more in charge than you'd think they were. Their tools, the tools of fascism are subsidy, regulation, and law. The nastiest of this bunch is probably the aerospace and defense industry, or the military-industrial complex, and the prison industry, uh, both who are rife with people who are making lots and lots of money uh, just to kill people and put people in cages. Uh, running up with this is the financial services industry, which also uses the fiat currency system and the U.S. government's appetite for debt to make lots of money uh, based on theft from the citizenry. Now, fascism sounds like a nasty word, and I'm going to actually do two more podcasts just on American fascism, uh, the topic itself. But it really goes across almost all industries. Uh, it goes into natural resources such as oil, gas, coal, uh, into healthcare, obviously, to the pharmaceutical industry, agriculture, universities, public education, utilities, the legal industry, transportation, accounting and auditing, automotive and now even media and entertainment and communications, not to mention our friends at the U.S. Post Office. All of these places are cartelized by industry councils, meaning that only the biggest and most uh, sort of long-lasting companies are allowed to participate in these markets in any real meaningful way, and they are allowed to sort of write the laws and get uh, regulation and subsidies that keep the smaller guys out. Uh, for example, you can't be a small pharmaceutical firm and successfully market a product. Only like the top four or five are allowed to launch products because of the how the laws are set up. Now, you can have a pharmaceutical set, uh, startup, but most of those uh, build small pieces of technology which they then, then license to the bigger firms or they hope for an acquisition 
and they get that liquidity liquidity event in the stock market. Uh, the same goes for you can't start a small bank with any great success or a small financial services firm because they essentially made it illegal. Uh, same goes for starting a health insurance uh, company uh, or, or any of these other large concerns because the law is in effect. So if we were to look for a government solution to get rid of some of these bad boys making so much money, you know, getting their $12 million per year, uh, I, I would say we could eliminate regulation, subsidy, and law that governs, governs business. Maybe with the exception of contract enforcement and criminality, you like when they murder someone. Uh, but even then, that's arguable. Now, I'm not sure that this would automatically make wealth equality many times better. But it would certainly be interesting to see what would happen if more competitors were entering the marketplace. The big companies had to be more competitive, and everyone had to run a little bit leaner in order to survive within the marketplace. So here's another situation. What if some rich people are getting their money because it's just for some completely stupid and useless reason? So I'm going to read this from Quora, uh, which is a question and answer site. Who are the top YouTubers? In 2014, the top YouTuber made $4.9 million unboxing toys. Yes, that's right. The whole channel is just her unboxing Disney toys. Her top video, Play-Doh Sparks Princess, has garnered 217 million views. Other examples include PewDiePie, who made $4 million in 2014, and Little Baby Bum, which made $3.5 million. If this makes you question everything you've done in your life, you're not alone. So that's pretty incredible. Uh, what could be more useless than watching someone on YouTube unbox a toy? Now, don't tell this to my four-year-old daughter because she absolutely loves it, but certainly, if people can make money this way, uh, there is no real justice in the world. Okay, so I now I've, I've mentioned a few government solutions to that might uh, mitigate some of the effects of wealth inequality in the United States. Almost all of them were sort of negative actions, uh, rather not something new to start doing, but something to stop doing. Unfortunately, if we looked at government positive actions, they almost always make good economics break. Uh, for example, welfare uh, anytime you create a sub subsidy for something, you always get more of it, and welfare has resulted in generational institutional poverty among the people who decide to take it. Free health care results in a loss of quality and a, a loss of availability uh, to the point where like, people in Canada have to come into Buffalo to get their MRIs. Uh, free college is going to ruin the signal and make it worth, uh, worthless for everybody. Unemployment insurance can only encourage extending unemployment. Minimum wage laws tend to reduce employment opportunities, especially among the very less skilled, such as teenagers. Here's a fun fact. Only 1.4% of all of the workforce is making minimum wage. So even raising minimum wage affects very few. I, I think why it's such a popular issue is because the, the few minimum wage workers are very visible to us. They all work at McDonald's and Walmart, whereas all the other workers we don't have access to for the most part. 
lastly, there's the idea of raising taxes, and that would be presumably to fund one of these positive actions, even though every action is sort of like watching a clown step into a bucket of paint, uh, just making things worse and worse. The problem with taxes, of course, is that the very wealthy people who are in these fascistic organizations or on being compensated through uh, Wall Street are also pretty much in charge of making up what constitute taxes. Uh, for example, uh, I should be personally in the 32 or 37 percent range based on my income, but once I got up to a certain threshold, uh, you are advised to hire an accountant and a lawyer. Uh, you incorporate and you're able to get your tax rate down to 15 percent. And this pretty much, I am guessing, happens to everyone who's making money that's, that puts them in the 95 percentile. If you're curious to how this works, this is kind of a little uh, digression. What you do is you, let's say you make uh, a quarter million dollars a year. You First, you incorporate your business so that you become a corporation. You then pay yourself some nominal salary, uh, which is considered your income. So you make 250000 You hire yourself to make $50,000. Now, what happens is since that's what your income is, uh, you pay the same rate as someone who makes $19,000 a year. What you do is then you take uh, the child credits away from that, and then that takes away 15000 more. And so you're only paying the 15% rate on about $35,000 per year. So if you think about that, that's for the whole fifty grand that you're paying yourself, you're really only paying yourself about 13%, paying out 13% or 14% in taxes. Then with the other uh, $200,000, you'd pay that as a dividend to yourself, which gets taxed at the, the capital gains rate uh, of 15%. So then whatever math is that you combine the 13%, uh, average it with the 15%, uh, it comes up with something under 15%. And then what the IRS does is they get pissed about that, and they have this thing called alternative minimum tax, which is a special rate uh, for people who have been so sneaky that they um, push it up back to 15%. So even though this this very wealthy uh, does pay in an enormous amount of taxes because 15% on the 12 million is quite a bit of money, uh, they're very crafty at avoiding taxes, and I don't think that would ever change. That would also presume that the government is going to do something good with that tax money, uh, such as one of those positive uh, actions that breaks economics, uh, they might just take it and go kill people or imprison more people uh, or pay themselves. The, the 4 million people on the payroll of the federal government uh, will just take raises. Another thing that's problematic about just going and taking the rich people's money is that most people sort of assume that if somebody has a billion dollars of net worth, that all that money is stored in cash or gold sitting somewhere unused. And usually, uh, wealthy people, or really all people, don't keep very much cash with them at all. Uh, even if their assets are measured in dollars, they're not actually dollars. They, they could be in the stock market or uh, in other assets like that. But most likely, uh, when you get someone who's really wealthy, uh, their assets might be a fleet of dirt haulers uh, or a fleet of trucks or buildings or a factory or other things like that that you can't readily... Uh, just liquidate, which would require it selling to some other rich guy, uh, and then you know spread the wealth out in terms of cash. And nor would you could necessarily take a fleet of dirt haulers and then just hand them out to random people who wouldn't know what to do with them.
that would also ruin the productive capacity that the wealth, the wealthy person owns, uh, meaning that you could no longer uh, have those dirt haulers uh, to drill for oil uh, or find metals to make tin cans or whatever. We should also make note that if you were just to take the billionaire's wealth and let's say you could liquidate it all and then just hand it out to everybody, what would happen is there would be sort of this one large consumption event uh, where everyone got their, their extra $10,000 and then could spend it and blow it on what they wanted. But once we ruined all the productive capacity, there would be no wealth left. So it would be sort of a one-time spree that would ultimately wipe out all of the production facilities. And then after that, after about, I don't know, maybe a year or so, then everybody would just have nothing to buy anymore. All of these approaches are really sort of a, a bank robber mentality, which is sort of when a child or, or someone who hasn't thought through things very much wonders how you could get a bunch of money, and the idea is to buy a gun, put a mask on, disguise yourself, and then go take money from a bank. And that analogy isn't just a theft analogy, even though theft is what's at the core of all of these, these solutions. Uh, it's also people don't think of the bank uh, as having people's money. They just think of the bank sort of magically, magically having a large store of cash, not that they uh, are taking other people's accounts. The thief in this, the bank robber in this example, does not want someone to rob his bank and deplete his accounts. The other interesting part of the bank robber analogy is the anonymity that the bank robber wants to have. He doesn't want to go into the bank as himself with the gun and take the money. He wants to hide the true nature of the theft and hide the identity of the thief. This is very much like the nature of government, who is the anonymous mask by which the thieves hide behind. I've got to confess, I have found this last half hour of speaking kind of joyless for me. It took me a long time to get through it, but I, I did want to get the thoughts down. Hopefully for you, the listener, it wasn't as painful. I do want to sort of shift the conversation to sort of a slightly different place and explain why uh, a, a search for wealth inequality not only breaks economics, but could... Uh, catastrophically affect how real wealth is created in the world for all of us. In our reality, it's the consolidation of wealth within a, a single person or a single groups of people, which both make additional wealth creation for everybody possible. And it's also the reward of wealth accumulation to one person or a group of people that makes the pursuit of innovation and wealth creation for everybody desirable. You can see it in that for someone to become wealthy, they actually have to provide more value than they are taking. We know this on an individual transaction because when you want to buy, say, an iPhone, it's worth more to you than the money that you give up. This doesn't just go for an iPhone. It could go for a Subway sandwich where you value the sandwich more than you do the $5. It goes for everything that makes your life better. And those things are popping up every day. Uh, if we just think in the last hundred years, any, everything from not having to poop outside because we have toilets to not being able to uh, read at night because we didn't have lights, all occurred because of these type of transactions. And the more valuable the innovation is, the more wealth that it brings to ordinary people, the more times you want that transaction to repeat. 
And every time it repeats, it means it's putting more money into the capitalist hands who developed and marketed that product. It also is how uh, employment grows, and employment is when other people get, you know, paying jobs and hopefully better paying jobs uh, to buy those neat innovations and those products that they want to do. Uh, for example, if I have uh, four employees, it's because each one of them makes me more money than I spend, even though they all get good, you know, productive wages uh, that enable themselves to increase their own wealth. Now, every, every employee that I want to hire, I have to make more money than the cost of having that person. There's no employee that I would ever hire that would reduce the amount of money that I make. Even ones that are in the back office, say, doing payroll or something that don't uh, directly contribute revenue, they are doing an activity that one of the revenue-producing people would have to do. So that means if I were to perpetually create good-paying jobs for people, then every time I added a person, I would become incrementally wealthier. So you could see it wouldn't take very long, you know, probably only 50 or 100 or maybe 500 employees till that $12 million mark is probably being hit as my own compensation. I want to emphasize the role of these products and these innovations in creating wealth for everybody. If we go back about 150 years, you could take almost the richest person on the world and their standard of living is worse than a poor or middle class person here in the US. Uh, if we just take the introduction of Novocaine, for example, or anesthesia during surgery, you could imagine that the king of old would give up his gesture and his concubine in order to get these things. These things are routinely available uh, to just about everybody in the United States. The same goes for electricity, uh, plumbing, cars, telecommunications, all of these things have made us infinitely wealthier. So when we say that a poor person is wealthier than the richest person 150 years ago, it's not because they have you know now two bottles of meat and two jesters and two harems. Uh, they have all of these crazy inventions that came through the capitalistic uh, process, which required people in the past to consolidate wealth into fewer individuals, you know, uh, have consolidate capital, really, uh, so those people could build these innovations. Uh, and they never really make these to just market to a few people, with a couple ex exceptions of, like, luxury watches and maybe silk stockings or something. Uh, most products that generate a lot of wealth for an individual are ones that can be sold to absolutely everybody. If we go back to our iPhone, Steve Jobs' ghost does not want to sell iPhones to just rich people. He wants every single person to have one. And if you actually walk around the world, not the world, but the here in the U.S., it seems that everybody does have one. These types of products also tend to be fairly equal among different income groups. And those gaps both shorten and close as the innovations become better. So what's kind of neat is that I have the same iPhone as someone who makes twice as much as me, and I also have the same iPhone as my cleaning lady does. We can apply this to just a huge list of things where the experiences are basically the same between the, between the products of the wealthy and the low income. And if we want this trend to continue, we'll notice that that consumption gap will continue to close and continue to be more similar 
the people, the wealthier people will always have more. They'll always have less worry. They'll have a better version. But the same experiences are there between the two groups. So if we think about like electric lights, uh, both a rich person and a middle class person experience electric lights basically the same. The toilet, which transformed how we, how and where we go to the bathroom, is almost the exact same experience between a wealthy person and a middle class or poor person. The football we watch and the buffalo wings we eat on Sunday are almost identical between the two groups. It's not like we have luxury football for rich people and then poor person football on the TV uh, for the lower income. The type of TV is probably mostly the same these days. I'm sure it's just a matter of inches between whose flat screen is bigger and who's smaller. The bed you sleep on, the heating system that you have in your house, the web browser you use on your computer, the computer itself, the phone, as we talked about. Uh, the car has some differences between you know the Mercedes-Benz and your 10-year-old uh, you know, Saturn, uh, but they essentially still have the same uh, capability of transporting a person from point A to point B uh, between 35 and 65 miles per hour. They have headlights, they have the same radio, uh, they have the seat, they have the steering wheel. They're, it's essentially the same experience. And we can imagine, as we've seen, is that cars become more and more available, you know, over these past decades uh, to lower income people uh, with all the same features that come on luxury models. Uh, people's homes, while, you know, might be wildly different in decoration and size, are still the same experiences of having four walls and a ceiling. Uh, if we go on, um, you know, most, a lot of the foods we eat, including ketchup, um, and mustard, like the first two commercials we heard at the beginning of the podcast, are, are pretty much the same. In fact, if you listen to that Grey Poupon ad, the whole marketing twist that they did was that Grey Poupon was a benefit or a luxury for very wealthy people uh, that they would, they would covet. But then at the end of the car chase, they end up in the grocery store, and it turns out that anyone uh, can go have that experience of being a rich person through their Grey Poupon mustard. And to the title of this podcast, which is Catch Up to the Rich, Wealth Inequality, and Toilet Paper, let's remember that the toilet paper experience between everybody is pretty much the same. What's particularly fascinating is to think about what new innovations and products are going to come out in the future. Because we, what we've seen is that the gap between the wealthy adopting something and the poor or middle class people adopting something is getting shorter and shorter. So while like the original cell phone was uh, when it came out in the 80s or early 90s was only a product that the very rich could have, you know, it took about 10 or 15 years before everybody could have one. When the iPhone came out in 2007, it was only a matter of a couple of years before everybody had the internet in their pocket. Really, it wasn't just the internet. I'm going to read a part of a blog by my good friend Isaac Morehouse uh, that he published back in April of this year, 2015, entitled Why I Don't Care About Income Inequality. He goes on, he says, In the 1980s, if I told you for only a few hundred dollars anyone could have a $1 million asset in their pocket, you'd call me crazy. But here we are. The chart above, which is a chart of different types of premier uh, technologies when they came out, what their original uh, suggested retail price was, and then what their 2011 price was, 
um, all added up, tabulated, and it goes through things like features of an iPhone, video conferencing, GPS, digital voice recorder, digital watch, uh, a digital camera, medical library, video player, video camera, music player, encyclopedia, and video game console. When you sum up all of these items, the total comes to $902,000, which means essentially, if we were 1980, you would have to have about a million dollars to purchase all these things, which now just about anybody can. And not only can they purchase it, they can have it in their pocket, and the experience is, is completely the same as between a low-income person and a very affluent person. So, so going back to thinking about the future, there's going to be things that are perhaps worth a million dollars now that because of innovation and because of the capitalistic process will eventually only be a few hundred dollars or will be available to every single person regardless of their income status. So if you think about that, what are, what are these big things going to be? Um, could they be personal flight? Uh, could they be the harnessing of gravity waves? Can they be new forms of transportation, which are, are much faster? Will they be augmentations to the human body, which make us smarter or stronger or healthier? The most intriguing one to me, and this is the one that I think will truly transform how wealthy everybody in the world is, is when innovation figures out a way to make us stop dying. In some time in the future, they will figure this out. Maybe it'll just be, it'll start off with just an extension of life by 20 years. Uh, maybe maybe they'll end up extending life up to a you know, 100 years more or to 500 years, or maybe even making death and disease something wholly of the past. If we don't sort of respect the capitalistic process now, that innovation is going to delay or never be found. And it will certainly never be available to everybody, regardless of income class. And there's going to be this very grim time frame, this window where people who are like 70 or 80 years old suddenly see that innovation appear on the market. And they're going to know that it's going to take some amount of time before that product moves from the very wealthy to the general population. And they're going to be on that cusp where they're going to miss that window. And the price they'll pay is ultimate poverty, which is being dead. For just this feature, this ultimate poverty should make everyone really want to stop thinking about wealth inequality as a measure of nominal bank accounts measured in U.S. dollars, and instead think about universal consumption, about how this, how if, if we allow wealth to accumulate legitimately now, uh, not in those those crappy ways that I started the podcast with, but in those ways that generate more value than they take, this is how we're going to erase the ultimate poverty, uh, which is death itself. Between the years 1980 and 2005, 80% of all new income generated in this country went to the richest 1%. Let me put that in terms that even you fat-ass teabaggers, sorry, can understand. Hey. Say a hundred Americans get together and order a hundred slice pizza. The pizza arrives, they open the box, and the first guy takes 80 slices. <laughs> 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 no, 
And if someone suggests, why don't you just take 79 slices, that's socialism! <laughs> I know, I know. I know, I know, it's just a TV show. But it does reinforce the stupid idea people have that rich people would love us and share with us if only they got to walk a mile in our cheap plastic shoes. But they're the reason the shoe factory moved to China. We have this fantasy that our interests and the interests of the super rich are the same. Like somehow the rich will eventually get so full that they'll explode. And the candy will rain down on the rest of us. Like there's some kind of pinata of benevolence. But here's the thing about a pinata. It doesn't open on its own. You have to beat it with a stick. So, can you feel it? You know, it would be an interesting number to come up with instead of that uh, adding up everyone's assets and income and net worth measured in U.S. dollars would be to measure the value of everyone's consumption goods, uh, everything from the food that they would eat within a year uh, to the durable goods that they might have for years or decades, uh, including their car and their home, and see how that equation plays out as far as what the 1% have uh, versus everybody else. The better analogy than the pizza uh, having the first 80 slices taken by the first person might be that the 1% in this case owns the pizzeria and everyone else gets a slice of pizza. Also notice at the end when Bill Maher in this piece ends with let's hit them with a stick that he gets wild and roarous applause, highlighting the desire for violence to create redistribution solutions. I found a really uh, great article here written by Sam Harris, who I admire very much. I've read uh, several of his books and love his stuff on religion. Some of his other stuff is kind of, I don't agree with, uh, such as his nasty foreign policy, his view of government, and his analysis of free will. He's a fabulous writer. The One of his key strengths is his ability to use hypotheticals and lifeboat scenarios to create really impressive illustrations of different problems in the world. This also enables him to do some bad things too, uh, such as stack the deck, uh, create straw men, and poison the well in his arguments. Anyways, this article right here I'll read and I'll comment on is How Rich is Too Rich? And it was written August 17th, 2011. I've written before about the crisis of inequality in the United States and about the quasi-religious abhorrence of wealth distribution, wealth redistribution rather, that causes many Americans to oppose tax increases even on the ultra-rich. The conviction that taxation is intrinsically evil has achieved a sadomasochistic fever in conservative circles, producing the Tea Party, the Republican zombies, and increasingly terrifying failures of governance. Uh, just a quick comment. I'm going to assume when he says conservatives and Republicans, he's meaning free market advocates in this context. I'm not convinced that the conservatives, the Tea Parties, or the Republicans have a great sense of what free market are or what you know freedom in the marketplace would be. But let's just, I'll, we'll continue on with his language. Uh, also, he 
gets a lot of stuff in here. He he gets some of the arguments and doesn't necessarily refute them. Uh, for example, he uses the word intrinsically evil as applied to taxation, uh, as if he doesn't really know his kindergarten ethics, which says that theft is bad uh, regardless if you rename it. Uh, you can't take, as uh, I think it's Larkin Rose once said, you can't take an inherently immoral action and turn it into a moral one without significantly changing the action itself. I think this applies here. The taxes is theft. It's the same action. It just has a different name. And if it's not moral, and if it's the opposite of moral, then that probably makes it evil. Anyway, onward. Happily, not all billionaires are content to hoard their money in silence. Earlier this week, Warren Buffett published an op-ed in the New York Times in which he criticized our current approach to raising revenue. As he lamented many times before, he is taxed at a lower rate than his secretary is. Many conservatives pretend not to find this embarrassing. Okay, so he's Warren Buffett is talking about the rate that he pays, and this is probably absolutely true, uh, as it was with the tax illustration I did on my own uh, hypothetical income earlier in the podcast. He does, though, pay wildly more taxes uh, in order of magnitude than his secretaries d does. Conservatives view taxation as a species of theft. Okay, I'm just going to stop right there. Uh, that is true. It is a species of theft, as we just talked about before, and Harris probably clearly understands this. And to raise taxes on anyone for any reason is simply to steal more. And again, he understands it. It's true. Conservatives also believe that people become rich by creating value for others. Isn't that interesting? Uh, so he totally understands these arguments. Once rich, they cannot help but create more value by investing their wealth and spawning new jobs in the process. We should not punish our best and brightest for their success, and stealing their money is a form of punishment. So if I were just to stop here, I'd say, wow, this guy sort of agrees with what I think. And of course, what he's doing is he's probably making fun of people like me. Uh, of course, this is just an economic cartoon. Markets aren't perfectly reflective of the value of goods and services, and many people don't create much in the way of value for others. Now, this is true, too. We can go back to my supercharged, overblown stock market uh, analysis, or, or perspective, rather, uh, or in the fascistic areas that infect all industries within the United States, uh, including just about all of them, the worst of them, uh, being having the government as their sole customer. The government being the supposedly who's going to save us from wealth inequality is actually the prime driver of wealth inequality in many, many instances. In fact, as our re recent financial crisis has shown, it is possible for a few people to become extraordinarily rich by wrecking the global economy. And what I'm assuming that he's referring to here is the banking sector, who have, uh, at least if you, if you, pay, if you think GOP or, or the uh, New York Stock Exchange highs or the NASDAQ is an indication of economic growth or prosperity, they did indeed uh, cock that all up and then were bailed out back in 2008. And certainly that was unjust. So nevertheless, the basic argument often holds. Many people have amassed fortunes because they or their parents, parents or parents, created value. Steve Jobs resurrected Apple Computer and has since produced one gorgeous product after another.
It isn't an accident that millions of us are happy to give him our money. Well, amen. That is exactly right, and you couldn't have picked a better example. In fact, the Apple example is always the most shining because, uh, one, people clearly recognize the massive amount of personal wealth that an iPhone or a tablet uh, provides to them relative to the money they spend on it. Uh, they also, uh, just, you know, they understand that it's an equal thing between all people, that there is no super phone that the rich get to have and some crappy phone that the poor have. And also, it's one of the few industries that is really has escaped the fascistic elements of regulation, law, and subsidy. They're pretty much as free market as any large corporation can be. But even in the ideal case, where obvious value has been created, how much wealth can one person be allowed to keep? A trillion dollars? Ten trillion? Fifty trillion is the current GDP of Earth. That's in parentheses. Granted, there will be some limit to how fully wealth can concentrate in any society, for the richest possible person must still spend money on something, thereby spreading wealth to others. But there's nothing to prevent the ultra-rich from cooking all their meals at home, using vegetables grown in their own gardens, and investing the majority of their assets in China. So this bit, this is sort of a, a, a popular fallacy uh, amongst all people, I think. I don't know if it represents the idea of trickle-down economics, uh, but I think that's how trickle-down is, is usually understood, is that the very rich will take all of this money and then because of their own personal consumption, uh, buying houses and lobster tails and everything else, that other people, other vendors will profit from that and everyone will get richer from the consumption of the very rich. And that's completely untrue. Uh, how people, uh, the mass of people get wealthier is by acquiring the, the products and consuming the goods uh, that the rich have produced uh, and the companies that they own have produced. It's most likely that the actual consumption patterns of the very rich uh, are probably are uh, several times, maybe even 10 or 20 times that of the middle class person. But there's no way that they can consume uh, through eating and buying automobiles or whatever uh, the full extent of the assets that they own. Uh, Bill Gates, he can only build so big of a house and eat so many steaks a day uh, before he cannot consume that wealth back into the economy. In fact, him and guys like Warren Buffett uh, have, have so much wealth that they can't consume that they have gone to charity and pledging to give billions of dollars away, the only way that they could really consume that money personally. Bill Gates and Warren, oh, here, here we go. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, the two richest men in the United States, each have around 50 billion. Let's put this number in perspective. They each have a thousand times the amount of money you would have if you were a movie star who had managed to save 50 million over the course of a very successful career. Think of every actor you can name or even dimly recognize, including the rare few who have banked hundreds of millions of dollars in recent years, and run this highlight reel back half a century. Gates and Buffett each have more personal wealth than all of these glamorous men and women, from Bogart and Bacall to Pitt and Jolie combined. So this is an interesting paragraph overall, uh, because first, as we said previously, Gates and Buffett are two of the guys who give as much of their money back as they possibly can to help poor people. 
uh, also, not I don't know about uh, Buffett, but if you think about what Gates has done for the last 25 years is that he's completely put a computer uh, into every household and every business and every worker uh, in the United States, pretty much. Uh, he held that for a long time. Also consider that a lot of his wealth is that supercharged stock market wealth. Bill Gates doesn't have a big pile of gold like Smog the Dragon. What he does own is a large stake of Microsoft Corporation uh, held probably in common and preferred shares of stock. And that is valued at these billions and billions of dollars. It's the company that he owns that's uh, the asset. And that company uh, produces more, just like every company that has to be successful without leaning on the government, it has to actually produce more wealth than it takes in. In fact, there are people who rank far below Gates and Buffett in net worth who still make several million dollars a day every day of the year and have throughout the current recession. And there is no reason to think that we have reached the upper bound of wealth inequality, as not every breakthrough in technology creates new jobs. The ultimate labor-saving the ultimate labor-saving device might be just that, the ultimate labor-saving device. Labor-saving being in uh, italics. Imagine the future Google of robotics or nanotechnology. Its CEO could make Steve Jobs look like a sharecropper, and its products could put tens of millions of people out of work. What would it mean for one person to hold the most valuable patents compatible with the laws of physics and to amass more wealth than everyone else on the Forbes 400 list combined. So here, here's one of those those great hypothetical uh, puzzles that, or illustrations that Harris likes to, to create. So it's it's probably unlikely that um, that if if one person is uh, has built something so valuable and so powerful that uh, nobody else would flock into that marketplace. That's sort of how competitive markets work. Uh, once uh, large amounts of profits are being made by one person in a certain uh, industry or innovation. Uh, others flock to uh, attack the market until the market evens out uh, to its best players. But still, let's just think about this. Uh, he would prefer this ultimate labor-saving device to not be created for fear that the person who invented it would have this enormous store of uh, wealth, you know, kept in, in, in terms of assets. If, if this is the ultimate labor-saving device, it's going to make everyone richer, you know, beyond belief. Any super product that comes out on the market that's the best thing ever that reduces work for everyone means that everybody's going to have to work a lot less. Uh, there might be, there would be uh, some scary frictional employment probably in the beginning as people re rejiggered their, their work weeks and people started taking more time off uh, because um, the ultimate labor-saving device is now a real thing. And of course, if the labor-saving device is there, it's going to generate more, uh, more inexpensive products, uh, more consumer goods that people can buy at a lower price. And ultimately, this person who, who creates the labor-saving device is not going to create something where he just eliminates his marketplace overall. Because if everyone's out of a job, then who's going to buy the products that this labor-saving device is helping make? So this is all kind of preposterous. Now, if you want to even apply it to history, it gets kind of scary. Because let's take Thomas Edison 
and the uh, you know bazillion different inventions uh, you know from the harnessing of electricity um, you know to the movie camera to all the other things that he invented the light bulb that make our lives so much better I mean just imagine not having electricity you know that would be the end of hospitals it would be the end of you watching TV it would be the end of you uh, heating your home effectively air conditioning uh, how cars work you know how uh, every device you have in your your home how we were able to share information via computers and inter- uh, networks and internet uh, how our food is transported how our food is grown um, obviously the implications for harnessing electricity uh, are just enormous just think of how much wealthy we are with electricity than we were prior to not having power you know you used to have to uh, you know, use a horse to, to plow your lands, and then you would uh, have to go to sleep when it got dark because there was no light. Uh, and then if you got sick, you might have died because there was no hospital or no ambulance to take you there. So in Harris's world, if he were to look at what if this man, let's say Harris was around in whatever, eighteen late 1800s, and thought, what if some terrible person invented the most powerful product ever? Uh, that so severely reduced labor across the whole workforce, then that man would get a bunch of wealth and everybody would be poor. But the fact is, it's just the opposite. When you create the ultimate labor-saving device, as electricity was back uh, 100 years ago, you actually make everybody massively more wealthy, regardless of how big Thomas Edison's bank account was. How many Republicans, I'm going back to the article now, how many Republicans who have vowed not to raise taxes on billionaires would want to live in a country with a trillionaire and 30% unemployment? Well, okay, let me stop. Uh, if, if If his 30% unemployment is true, I bet a lot of that would come from people who just realized that they don't have to work anymore because products were so cheap and their labor has been saved. Maybe they would even own a labor saving device of their own and that's why they would not work. If the answer is none, and it really must be, then everyone is in favor of wealth distribution. They just haven't been forced to admit it. Okay, so he kind of, he jumped from an argument of, uh, what if this hypothetical trillionaire put everybody out of work to say that this means absolutely we must have a system of wealth distribution, presumably by a violent government. So that's what he's saying there. But I I think he sort of makes a leap. Uh, Yes, we must cut spending and reduce inefficiencies in government. And yes, many things are best accomplished in the private sector. But this does not mean that we could ignore the astonishing gaps in wealth that have opened between the poor and the rich and between the rich and the ultra-rich. Some of your neighbors have no more than $2,000 in total assets. In fact, 40% of Americans fall into this category. Some have around $2 million and some have two billion, and a few have much more. Each of these gaps represents a thousandfold increase in wealth. Of course, again, this is talking about uh, the numbers in your bank account uh, and your stock portfolio, uh, not necessarily the relative wealth between one person's toilet paper and the other person's toilet paper, and then the super billionaire's toilet paper. The consumption goods and how we live our lives is the true measure of wealth and wealth inequality. Here's the last uh, sentence from the article. 
Some Americans have amassed more wealth than they or their descendants can possibly spend. I would agree with that. Who do conservatives think is in a better position to help pull this country back from the brink? Well, I think it is them, but probably not by giving their money to the government, but instead letting capital concentrate into the hands of those who know how to make innovation and produce products and services and durable goods and consumable goods that help everyone be wealthier. And that next one could very well be the next great labor-saving device, just like electricity was 100 years ago. And that innovation could also be, as I said before, the elimination of death. First things first, happy birthday. Thank you. The big one five? Mm -hmm. The big one five. Which Kardashian sibling gives you the best presents? They all give me the best presents. and um, But this year, Kim gave me a pretty great present. What did she give you? She got me a new purse, and it's I'm like literally in love with it. And I, I bet it's not just a, a normal purse. This is probably a legit, real deal, expensive designer bag. I, you got to tell us. She got me a, um, a Balenciaga bag. That sounds expensive. It's so uh, I'm in love with it. What did you get Kendall for her big day tonight? Yeah, Kylie, what'd you get me? I got her a Prada. No, she. Oh yes, yeah, you I did. did. You did. I got, <laughs> I got her a Prada cheetah wallet. That's nice. Yeah, it's pretty cute. I wear, I put it in my new purse. Okay, so that was the Kardashian sisters. I'm not sure which ones those were. I think they were the younger ones, uh, not the one that uh, puts your butt on the internet. And I don't know how this fits in, but if you look at pop culture right now on how they portray the wealthy's uh, personal consumption, you have shows like Beverly Hills, Housewives, uh, the Keeping Up with the Kardashians, uh, people like Paris Hilton, and uh, all these shows are, are images of generally stupid, unproductive, lazy, narcissistic, self-involved people who have a lot of money, and they tend to blow it on the most ridiculous things possible. This is also true of rap culture. If you've ever seen rap videos, uh, the rap artists get a lot of money, and the first thing they do is they throw a big party in a hot tub where they pour $150 bottles of champagne on a hose butt. Uh, and this is considered good behavior and entertaining behavior for a wealthy person to just mindlessly consume their wealth in ways that make absolutely no sense. Uh, same with that audio clip uh, celebrating the teenager's uh, you know, multi-thousand dollar purse and wallet that she received. And if you've seen glimpses of these shows, uh, you know that they pretty much spend their time drinking wine, arguing, and uh, going shopping, uh, having you know elaborate things done that make no sense. You never see them, these wealthy people, saying, oh, I want to invest in a Pepsi bottler. Uh, I want to buy a catap you know, fleet of caterpillar uh, dirt haulers or, or backhoes so I can lease them to construction. They don't invest in charitable things like uh, establishing their own foundation, uh, giving to charity, or having a building dedicated in their names. They just stupidly blow money uh, like it doesn't matter, and to no really you know, great effect to themselves. Uh, and all of these shows, they're famously unhappy. And I half wonder the whole uh, Caitlyn, Bruce Jenner thing, 
if that, I know, you know, people look at it, the LBGT community as some great triumph of a dude who wanted to be a woman. And I'm sure other people look at it and go, wow, well, Bruce Jenner must have uh, taken a serious course of weird hormones uh, that time when he was uh, Olympic champion. But in some ways, it may just be this ultimate clowny expression of pointless wealth consumption, where you're so rich and you give so little about what you consume that uh, having surgery to have breasts put in and wearing fancy dresses is the ultimate expression of unrestrained, uncaring, self-involved, pointless consumption. Now, does this does this cultural phenomenon have you know meaningful effects on how the the poor and the middle class view the rich? Uh, that there are these just these lazing people who who blow money indiscriminately on on things that don't make them happy. Uh, that they're just there. The whole point of being of obtaining wealth is so you have the ability to dump a bottle of champagne on someone's butt in a hot tub. Uh, it could. I mean, it could very well be tainting everyone's perception of what it means to be wealthy, uh, how wealth is created, and what the whole point of obtaining wealth is. Uh, is, you know, just to get it so that you can waste it on things that make no sense. So that that I don't know if that concerns me or if that sort of ruins what the view is of, of wealth in America, but I certainly think it could be symptomatic. Now, I also probably have to adjust that statement for how TV works. So people people might have uh, this fascination with these sort of half-retarded uh, wealthy people who blow money on anything. But then again, I like movies about Nazis. I like movies where space aliens come and kill everybody. I like movies that have fighting in them. And none of those things do I actually strive for or aspire to. It's the nat nature of media, entertainment media in particular, to portray badness and have us be fascinated by it. So perhaps these um, lower class, middle class people who are enjoying these shows don't actually think that's how wealth is. Maybe they're just sort of fascinated by the train wreck. And that's what I'm hoping for, if anything at all. So I think that's all I have to say about wealth inequality as it stands now. Uh, I'm really hoping, you know, my hope is that we don't try to use these bank robber solutions to make people's bank accounts look the same. And instead of focus on how consumption and ownership of, of things that make our life better uh, be the true measure of how wealthy everybody is. Of course, the people with a high income are going to have better versions of a lot of the things that people consume, or more of them, and more, may perhaps more time to access them. But as we've learned throughout history, is that as time goes on, that gap between what the rich have as their baseline eventually becomes the baseline for everybody. The market actually works uh, with the wealthy being the people who determine the marketability of products. When a new product comes out, it's typically very expensive. For example, when the colored television first came out, uh, adjusted for inflation, it would have cost about forty or fifty thousand uh, dollars. Same with the cell phone, the VCRs, and most new products like that are first consumed by the rich, and that validates their marketability, and then makes the case for them to go into mass production and become affordable for everybody. 
So we want to encourage this march towards new innovation, towards new products being developed, and for them being distributed widely to everybody. Uh, we want to encourage the time when electricity changed everyone's wealth profile by a hundredfold. And we want to embrace the next electricity discovery, which is the great labor-saving device that Sam Harris talked about, because that will make us all another hundred times wealthier. We also don't want to focus on the nominal values in bank accounts, and we want to let capital accumulate with people who are going to make this happen and also have them understand that more capital will accumulate as they get it done correctly. Going back to the article I started the podcast with, uh, which is 12 things that only the working poor truly understand, if we start reviewing this list, uh, we have to think that these are, first of all, I mean, these are the, the poorest people who are struggling to achieve these things, but they actually do often achieve them, uh, which means if that's the case, then people in the sort of uh, lower middle class and the middle class and the middle upper class are probably getting along with them quite handily. So car maintenance was the number 12 uh, so yeah, that's tough, but you know, how many years ago, how many decades ago did you not even have a car to worry about? The dental struggle. Again, we talk about the invention of Novocaine and the availability of dentistry in general, and it's now available to them even though it is a struggle. Uh, the sick kid, you know, they now have medicine, the medical emergency struggle. You know, if we're going to solve uh, disease and death itself, this is going to disappear as well. The grocery struggle, uh, how much, you know, uh, the, the lower class are having problems with obesity at this time. It's not a, a lack of food. And, you know, this innovation comes from the capitalistic process. Uh, the bill paying, the overdraft fee struggle, you know, these things are all going to be alleviated. School clothes, you know, clothes will continue to get cheaper and more plentiful, as will school supplies, as will birthday presents, as with Christmas presents, and, yes, hygiene products. The number one thing that they listed, as we know, the even not only will hygiene products continue to be available and innovative, but they will be the exact same experience between classes. The rich person's toilet paper is the same as the poor person's toilet paper. Pretty cool. Also, I want you to imagine what this list, if you know someone was to rewrite this article in 50 years, how wildly different it would be, and what new items that we can't even imagine the poor people struggling to afford Perhaps it would be with extending life, or it will be with their flying cars or whatever, uh, but it'll probably be very, very different. And looking back, the, um, the person in 50 years will find the other list to be unbelievable. So I'm trying to wrap up this podcast, and I have to finish it. Um, and I, I did once already, but I'm going to re-record the ending because I wasn't satisfied with how, what I did at first. Um, I also want to think about that list we talked about, that when we think of wealth inequality, we usually think about in terms of poor people in the United States versus rich people in the United States. But we don't think about the inequality that probably two or three billion people on the world suffer. If you were to read that list to someone who's on a dollar a day in Bangladesh, uh, they would e it would either be a slap in the face or they wouldn't even know what you were talking about. It would be a completely foreign level of wealth to them. So for that reason, we do have to continue on uh, with the capitalistic approach if we want to not just uh, create wealth for lower and middle income people here, 
but if we want to alleviate poverty around the world. Uh, I also wanted to say that I probably didn't swing hard enough on the Bill Mayer segment. Uh, he sort of neglected to say uh, whether the 100 people uh, all bought the pizza together. Um, as I said before, the, the better analogy is probably that that 1% owns the pizza parlor, uh, which would be a lot worth more than uh, worth a lot more than a single pizza. Um, but that wouldn't mean necessarily that he was consuming more. And the biggest uh, thing that he neglected to mention is that he himself is part of that 1%. Uh, he's, his net worth is estimated to be, to be around 23 to $30 million. Uh, so using his analogy, he's the slob who's eating the first 80 pieces by himself. Lastly, uh, the initial title of the podcast was Catch Up to the Rich, uh, Wealth Inequality, and Toilet Paper. And my idea with there was, um, was to take a more fun, uh, lighthearted approach uh, talking about consumerism, uh, such as things like toilet paper and ketchup. And then I wanted to end it with uh, congratulating the guy who figured out how to turn the ketchup bottle upside down so you don't have to wait anymore. Uh, but it sort of seemed kind of trivial because the podcast went into some uh, more heavier areas than I had expected. So, the new title of this podcast is Death is the Ultimate Poverty. There's some corn in the stone Where it glows and shows the rosy walls And shines between the shadows There's a star in the void and it lights the sky so we toast it tonight named it a spirit star
Yeah.